Good morning. It's good to see all of you. We're glad that you've come here at Ivy Creek this morning to join us for worship. We are so glad that you're here, and I hope that you brought your Bibles with you today. If you did, take them out. Turn with me again to the book of Genesis, and I say again because we've been, uh, we've been in the book of Genesis for quite a while since the first part of this year, studying through it uh, verse by verse and section by section, and uh, we continue that study this morning as we come to chapter 48, and as you make your way there, I just want to ask a question for you to consider uh, as we prepare to look at this chapter this morning, and the question that I have for you is this, what is your legacy? What is your legacy? Um, oftentimes when we think about a legacy, we think about a gift of money, or a gift of land, or some other possession that is passed down from a parent. Uh, or a grandparent into a, a, a later generation. But in actual fact, a, a legacy, according to the dictionary, is, is anything that is transmitted or received from an ancestor or a predecessor, or even from the past. So according to that definition, a legacy is, is not always something material. In fact, I believe to only think of a legacy in terms of it being money or possessions or something material in nature, uh, is an unfortunate mistake. Chip Ingram has written that the legacy that we leave is, is more than simply what we possess. He says that whether we know it or not, every day we are passing on who we are and what we learn. So, so since a legacy is more than just money or possessions... There is something else, I believe, that's important that we need to know about a legacy, and that is, as one has written, like death and taxes, it is an area in life where you really don't have a choice. You will leave an inheritance of some kind to those who come after you. So the question is this, what legacy will you leave? And really, the follow-up question is even more important will the stuff that you pass down really matter? Last week in our study from Genesis chapter 47, we were confronted with the fact that as believers, we must regularly evaluate what is most important to us. And we, we have to ask ourselves if the things that we are pursuing in life have any lasting value and any eternal value, or, or are they ultimately inconsequential and temporary and worthless? Well, those same questions, I believe, need to be applied to the legacy that we are leaving our loved ones. We should ask ourselves if our focus is primarily on a material legacy that will ultimately only be temporary, or are we leaving our loved ones a spiritual legacy that will impact them for eternity? I like this definition of a spiritual legacy that I came across this week. Is this A spiritual legacy is one that focuses on your relationship with the Lord. And it's the stories of your past and your present walk with Him that is then given to the future. Well, our text this morning from Genesis 48 really confronts us with all of those questions regarding legacies. And as we will read, Moses tells us that the aged patriarch Jacob is lying on his deathbed and he is 147 years old and he knows that his time is short 
And he desires to convey something of tremendous value and importance to his son Joseph and to his grandsons Manasseh and Ephraim. And in the scene that we read about here in chapter 48 that unfolds before us, we are presented with an illustration of what true faith really is and a conviction of why it is so vitally important that we pass on an enduring spiritual legacy to those who come after us. So with that as an introduction, let's pick up and begin reading there the word of the Lord in chapter 48 of Genesis. Verse 1 says this, Now it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, Indeed, your father is sick. And he took with him two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, look, your, son's, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on the bed. And then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, they are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. Your offspring whom you beget after them shall be yours. They will be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. But as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Then Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me in this place. And he said, please bring them to me and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. And then Joseph brought them near him and he kissed him and kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had thought, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact, God has also shown me your offspring. So Joseph brought them from beside his knees and he bowed down with his face to the earth and Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all of my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be named among, upon them and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand and removed it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he shall be great. But truly his younger brothers shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude 
of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, by, by you, Israel, will bless, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. And then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying. God will be with you and will bring you back to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather in your house to be able to worship you. And Lord, I pray that as we focus on your holy word that you have authored by your Holy Spirit, that by that same Holy Spirit, you will give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand the truth that you would have us to know today. Help us to be able to look at our life through the eyes of faith and and then impress upon us the true necessity of passing that faith on to those who come after us. I pray this, that you might be lifted up, that you might be exalted in our lives, and that we might draw closer to you as a result of it. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. In the opening verse of the great Hall of Fame chapter of faith, which occurs in Hebrews chapter 11. In the very first verse of Hebrews 11, the writer gives us a definition of what faith is. And, and he's, he says this, he says, Faith is the substance or the realization of things that are hoped for and the evidence or the confirmation of things that are not seen. And it's from that opening verse in Hebrews 11 that the writer then begins to give us a whole list of, of, of various heroes of Scripture who, who demonstrate what that faith looks like. It describes their acts of faith. We read there about Abel's sacrifice. We read about Enoch's ascension. We read about Noah building an ark. We read about Abraham's radical obedience. On and on the examples go. And then we arrive at Hebrews 11 verse 21. In Hebrews 11, 21, we, we find the passage that I have just read for you in Genesis 48 encapsulated down into one verse. Hebrews 11, verse 21 says this, By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. Now, if we were to take the definition of faith that we get there in verse 1, and, and lay that on top of what that faith being demonstrated looks like there in verse 21 of Hebrews 11, what we'd see is that we'd find that Jacob, by the realization of what is hoped for and the evidence of what is not seen, when he was dying, he blessed each of Joseph's sons and he worshiped God there. In, in other words, Jacob's faith was so fully invested in in the God of his fathers, that the last meaningful action that he took on this side of eternity was to worship God by passing on his covenant blessing to Ephraim and to Manasseh. And from that, what we realize is that, is that Jacob's legacy was not a material legacy of possessions. Rather, it was, it was a spiritual legacy of faith. Now, Back here in Genesis chapter 48, we, Moses tells us the context of how that spiritual legacy of faith was passed on. Our passage begins by telling us that Jacob was ill. He was, he was sick. 
and that that information was passed on to Joseph. Incidentally, it's the first time in all of Scripture we find that someone is described as being ill. And, and, and it was an illness that was unto death. In other words, they knew that the time was coming close for Jacob to die. And so Joseph gets his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and he takes them with him to visit his father, perhaps for the last time, much as probably some of us in this room have had that phone call where we've known that an, an aging loved one is, is at the point of death. And we, we take those that mean very much to us of our lower, the generation that's come after us to go see and to visit with the generation that has come before us. And so that's the scene that we see here in chapter 48. Now, what's interesting is that, remember, Manasseh and Ephraim were born to Joseph by his wife, Asenath. Asenath was, was the daughter of Potipharah, who was a pagan Egyptian priest. And furthermore, we know that Joseph's sons were born to him before Jacob and all of Israel had come down from Canaan into the land of Egypt. And we know that if, if, if Jacob is 147 years old here and, and they moved to Egypt when he was 130, then these two sons have to be at least older, very old teenagers or probably in their early 20s when they go see their grandfather. What we begin to understand is, is that Joseph and his two sons, they go to see this, this aging patriarch. And when, when Jacob hears that Joseph's coming, I mean, that was his favorite son. He, he, he may not have done well prior to that point, but he finds enough strength to sit up. And he finds enough strength to gather himself so that he can sit up on the edge of his bed because Joseph's coming. And he, and he gets himself ready for this, for this meeting. And as soon as Joseph gets there with his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, then Jacob begins to recount for Joseph and particularly for his grandsons the promises that God made to him when he was at Luz. Now, if you'll remember, Luz was the place where Jacob met God for really the first time. Luz was the place when, when he was fleeing from his brother Esau because he had stolen Esau's, his Esau's blessing from, from their father Isaac. And he, he was leaving to go to the land of Padan. It was the first night that he went and he slept in the land of Luz. And while he slept there, God came to him and gave him that vision of, of those angels ascending and descending on that great ladder, that great staircase. And it was such a mesmerizing experience for him. But it was also in the land of Luz that God made him a promise. In Genesis 28, verses 13 and 14, God came to him that night and said this, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. And you shall spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you all and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Jacob was truly mesmerized by that encounter with God. In fact, he changed the name of Luz to the name Bethel, which literally means the house of God. And he changed it there based upon the fact that God met with him personally and showed him where, where he was in the heavens and made him these wonderful promises. But later, God met Jacob and Luz for a second time. This was after he came back from Padan into the land of Canaan. He comes back to this same place after 20 years of being absent from the, from the promised land. 
And when he got to Luz, God reiterated the promises to him again. In Genesis 35, verses 11 and 12, he says, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you and to your descendants after you, I give this land. Two meetings between God and Jacob in Luz. And in both cases, God makes promises to Jacob. Well, fast forward to here to chapter 48, and here Jacob is. Many years later, on his deathbed, recounting for his son and his grandsons those same promises. And let me point out to you, he's recounting these promises to his grandsons who, by the way, had never stepped the first foot in the land of Canaan. He's making these promises to his grandsons who were by, by blood. They were half Egyptian by blood and they were fully Egyptian by culture. These were grandsons whose other grandfather was a pagan Egyptian priest. And through his dimmed eyes, Jacob stared into the faces of these grandsons and he tells them this. Notice the first point on your outline. He reiterates this point to them. Faith rests on God's promises. Faith rests on God's promises. You see, Jacob, just like his fathers before him, rested on the firm belief that God would deliver on the promises that he made to him. Though at this particular point, when he addresses his grandsons, not one single Israelite is left in the land of Canaan. Jacob declared his faith nevertheless that God would do exactly what God had said he would do. And I believe that's why the Holy Spirit led the writer of Hebrews to use this event as a way to illustrate what faith is. I mean, think about it. Of all of the events that could have been described about Jacob's life, of all the things that could have been written about, the scene where the angels were descending and ascending on the ladder and, and the great faith that he just, that could have been written about. Or, or it could have been talking about the time when he wrestled with the angel at the river of Jabbok and he, he walked with a limp for the rest of his life. That incident could have been recalled. Or even an event 17 years earlier when, when Jacob was just about to leave the, the promised land, but he stopped and he prayed and he wanted to have assurance that God wanted him to go to Egypt during the time of the famine and God gave him that assurance and he left. That could have been a moment that could have been described. But instead, what the writer of Hebrews holds forth for us as an illustration of Jacob's faith is that he rested on the fact that God would multiply him and make him a multitude of people and give him descendants in the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, even though he had no idea how and when that would happen. Brothers and sisters, faith rests on God's promises. Now what happens next to me is interesting, if, if not a little confusing. Beginning in verse 5, Jacob tells Joseph that he's going to adopt his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. He says, they now belong to me. In fact, he says, just as Reuben and Simeon were mine, so these two boys are now mine. And as such, they would enjoy equal status with Reuben and with Simeon and with all of the other brothers as becoming tribes of Israel. And here's the implication of that. You see, because both of these two sons were Joseph's sons and that they would now both be given the same equal amount of, of, of 
land and, and authority as far as a tribe in the land of Israel, then what that meant is that Joseph now received the double portion of the inheritance that was normally reserved for the eldest son. In fact, the writer of Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 5, tells us exactly that. He says that Reuben was indeed the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the sons of Israel. And so Jacob adopts Ephraim and Manasseh as his own, even though they were Joseph's sons. And then he goes on to tell Joseph in verse 6 that any future children that he might have would be incorporated into the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. And he says this, they will be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. Such an interesting word that Jacob would use there. Consider how important it is. The simple fact that Jacob states that there would be an inheritance demonstrates that he had an incredible reliance on God. Not only did his faith rest in God's promises, but the second thing I want you to know is this. Faith relies on God's faithfulness to those promises. Faith, faith rests on God's promises, yes, but it relies on God's faithfulness to those promises. That's exactly what we see being demonstrated to us here in this chapter. Remember where Jacob is. He, he is in a pagan nation in the midst of a global famine, hundreds of miles away from the land that God had promised his family, and yet he has the audacity to be thinking of an inheritance. What, what could allow him to do that? Faith. Trust. Belief that God would do exactly what God said he would do and that God would be faithful to do what he said he would do. Faith, brothers and sisters, is the substance of things that are hoped for and the evidence of things that are not seen. And as such, faith relies on God's faithfulness. Now, it's right about here in our text that things get a little difficult. When you're reading it, it's, it's as if Jacob sort of just goes off script a little bit and begins to talk about his wife, his, 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 the, the love of his life, Rachel. And he begins to remember, man, she was walking with me. We were on our way to Bethlehem when she died. Rachel, was, Rachel effectively was a, a younger woman to have passed away at the time that she did. And, and you get this reminiscing of Jacob. And, and some have, have, the scholars are all over the board when they're trying to explain why Moses writes what he writes here and why Jacob is, is reminiscing about Rachel. And honestly, I'm not sure exactly myself what he was doing. I think perhaps because what he's just done is given Joseph the double blessing, the double portion that would have normally been reserved for the eldest son. I think here he's just reminiscing about Joseph's mother. Even though she was the last wife of the four to give him a son, she now will be remembered as the mother of the one who received the double portion. I, I think there's a possibility there. Alistair Begg, who I have told you many times, is one of my favorite preachers to listen to and, and, and to hear. He, he just kind of believes that, 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 that Jacob is kind of moving in and out of lucidity at this moment. He's just having a hard time keeping his mind on track. And, and one of the reasons that he says that is because of what happens in verse 8. In verse 8, we read that... that Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, who are these? And, and it's that question, who are these sons, that causes 
some to go. You see, here's where he was an older man and his mind was not working as clearly as it had been because he just talked about Manasseh and Ephraim earlier in the chapter and now he's wanting to know who are these guys. And I know that when, when my grandmother had gotten up into her 90s and, and I would take my children to go and see her and, and I would have to introduce my kids to her and, and, and she would be able to keep that she would be able to keep that together, but if the conversation lulled for any length of time, she would forget who they were and I would have to reintroduce my children to her again. And so some are saying that that's exactly what's happening here in chapter 48. I, I don't know. I do know this. Some have also admitted and, 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 and said that when the question comes, who are these, that that question is maybe part of a formal adoption process. In fact, he's already said he's going to adopt those two sons to become his own. And so the question, who are these, is similar to, to like a question that is asked. Oftentimes I've asked it from standing right here, as a matter of fact, when I've had a, a bride on my right hand and a, and a groom on my left, and, 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 and there's been a father standing there in the middle, and I said, who gives this woman to be married to this man? The reason that I ask that question is not because I don't know who the father is. The reason I ask that question is because that's, Part of the solemnity of the moment. It's part of the, it is part of the process of, of him giving her to be married to this man. And so the question is not because there's not information and knowledge. It's part of the, it's part of the procedure. It's part of the ritual. And some would say that the question, who are these, is part of that ritual of the adoption process. Whatever the case may be, Joseph answers his father by stating that Manasseh and Ephraim are his sons that God has given to him in this place. And, and he says, well, then bring them near to me so that I may bless them. And it's here that we learn that, that, that Jacob is practically blind. He cannot tell which one is which because his vision is so blurred with age. But he kisses them and he hugs them. And then Joseph, Joseph then takes and places them so that Manasseh would be at Jacob's right hand. And the reason he does that is because Manasseh is the older of the two. And so the blessing, the right hand was the, 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 the hand of blessing. It was the one where the power was typically thought to be conferred through. And so Joseph positioned Manasseh, his oldest, at Jacob's right hand. And he positioned Ephraim so that he would come to Jacob's left hand. And the time for the blessing came and Jacob reached his hands out. But then he crossed his hand so that his right hand lay upon Ephraim's head and his left hand lay upon Manasseh's head. And then he gave them the blessing. I'm going to come back to the blessing and what he says there in just a moment. But I want you to just imagine if you were there, could you just see the shock on Joseph's face? What? No. No, that's not the way it's supposed to be. You see, Joseph knew what the customs were. He knew that the elder son was the one upon whom the family blessing was supposed to be conferred. That's why he had positioned his sons the way that they did. But then suddenly, out of nowhere it seems, that Jacob switched things. But I would suggest to you that it did not come out of nowhere. In fact, I think we've already got a hint that it was going to happen this way. Earlier in the chapter, if you look back in verse 1, you'll see that Manasseh and Ephraim are introduced to us by Moses as being the two sons of Joseph who came to visit their grandfather. But then down in verse 5, when Jacob makes the decision that he is going to adopt them to become his own, do you notice what he says? Ephraim and Manasseh are mine. He lists the younger son first before the older son. In the very same verse, at the end of it in verse 5, 
He says, they will be mine just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. That was the normal birth order. Reuben was oldest and then Simeon came second. What I would suggest to you is that even before the adoption took place and before the blessing took place, Jacob already knew that the younger would be blessed over the older. Now, incidentally, you can go back and check me on this. This is the fourth straight generation that that has taken place. It started, it started with, with Isaac receiving the blessing over Ishmael. Isaac was the younger. And then, and then it moved to Jacob receiving the blessing over Esau. Jacob was the younger. And then it's Joseph receiving. He was the favored son over his older brothers. And he receives the double portion over Reuben. And now, and now you have Ephraim receiving the blessing over Manasseh. Here's the point. Whatever the case may be, according to verse 17, Joseph took his father's hands off Ephraim's head, placed it on Manasseh's and said, Not so, my father. Not so, for this is the one who's firstborn. But the blessing was already conferred. Just as, just as Esau had not been able to get a blessing from Isaac after, after Jacob had, had really deceived him and stolen it, so here we see that once the blessing was passed, it was all done. Kent Hughes writes, How much more immutable was Jacob's deliberate blessing of Ephraim over Manasseh? Jacob could not reverse it, even if he wanted to. He did not wish to change a word because the blessing did not originate with him but with God. Jacob was only the messenger. And with crossed hands of blessing, his crossed hands of blessing were an act of profound faith, which again is why I say that the writer of Hebrews included this event in Hebrews chapter 11 as an example of faith. Now thus far we've, we've noted that faith rests on God's promises, that faith relies on God's faithfulness. I want you to just see verses 15 in the first part of 16. Notice, notice what Jacob says. He blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has led me or has fed me all of my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Just those three descriptions of God. Think about that for a second. When he says, the God of my fathers Abraham and the God of my fathers Isaac, what does that communicate to us? communicates to us that God is the God who is the same from generation to generation to generation. He doesn't change. He's been faithful to my fathers. He's been faithful to me. What does that tell those children? He's going to be faithful to you. Why? Because God doesn't change. That's the first thing. Then, then he says, He's the God who's fed me all of my life long to this day. Some of your versions read, He is the shepherd who has been shepherding over me all of my life. What, is the, what does a shepherd do? Well, a shepherd, if you, especially if you consider it from, from the 23rd Psalm, he is one who provides and restores and protects and comforts. And Jacob recognizes and he proclaims that God has done all of those things. He's fed me. He has taken care of me all of my life. And if he's taken care of me all of my life, what's he going to do for you? He's going to care for you too. But then, then he's the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Or as some of your versions read, he's the angel who's delivered me from all harm. Many point back to that being the moment the angel there is, is, is derived from that, that wrestling match that he had with, with the angel there in Genesis 32. 
And, and what we know is, is that that wrestling match changed Jacob. It changed him physically because his hip was dislocated and he walked with a limp for the rest of his life. But he didn't just walk with a physical limp, he walked with a spiritual limp, which was the best thing that could ever happen for him because that was the first time that Jacob realized that he needed a blessing from God. It was the first time that he realized that he, he needed God to, to do for him what he could not do for himself. And for the first time, he realized that it was not his plans and his schemes that would protect him, but it would be the hand of God that would protect him. So if you just take, if you take those three statements about who God is in verse 15 and the first part of verse 16, I believe they form a package that tell us that he is a God who walks with and shepherds over and redeems his people. I want you to think about that. He is a God who walks with and shepherds over and, and, and redeems His people. What a wonderful blessing to give to the, the children and the grandchildren that will follow behind is that that is my testimony, is that that's who God has been in my life and that's who God will be in your life. But there's still one last point. I want you to know, note the last point on your outline. Faith endures despite God's delays. You see, God is faithful to His promises. Your faith can rest on that. And your faith can, can rely on the fact that God is always faithful. But I want you to know your faith will endure when you realize sometimes God delays in bringing about those promises. Back down in verse 19, after Joseph protested, that the blessing fell upon Ephraim and not Manasseh. I love what, Joseph, what Jacob says. He says, I know, my son, I know. He shall also become a people, and he also shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. Can you imagine what those words, how they would have fallen on those boys' ears as they heard that? I'm going, to, I'm going to father a multitude of nations? Can you imagine as they heard about the promises that had been made to Jacob back in Luz that he was going to be the father and that his descendants would outnumber the sand on the seashore? And as of right now, all of the Israelites in the land of Egypt could still be counted and numbered. Here's the point. A few hundred years later, when they would come out of Egypt, they would be over two million strong. Even though God delays on fulfilling His promises, that does not negate His promises. Notice also that the chapter ends with Jacob giving Joseph a specific plot of land near Shechem. Joseph accepts it. What we should later note is that hundreds of years later during the Exodus, Joseph's bones were taken up out of Egypt and then after the conquest of the land of Canaan by the Israelites... Joshua buried Joseph's bones, guess where? In Shechem. And guess where Shechem was? It was in the land of Ephraim, who, by the way, was the son that Jacob's right hand fell upon and that the blessing was conferred to. So now maybe we can still get a better understanding of why the Holy Spirit 
impressed upon the writer of Hebrews to include this event out of all of the others that he could have written about, this example of what exemplifies faith, a faith that rests on God's promises, a faith that relies on God's faithfulness, and a faith that endures despite God's delays. And so as we come to the end of this chapter, I want to bring all of that together to center in on the context of legacy. Because you see, Jacob's faith, exemplified by the blessing that he passed on to Joseph's sons, was a faith that he possessed. God's promises to him were real. And he was banking his life and his future on God's faithfulness. And in the final moments of his life, he mustered up all of the physical strength that he had to pass that faith on to Ephraim and to Manasseh. And so far as we know, he had nothing tangible to pass on to them. All he had was the promise that God had given to him and to his father and to his father's father. But Jacob's faith in God's promise and in God's faithfulness to him, despite the delays, was the legacy that would surpass all of the gold in Egypt. As I mentioned at the beginning, Jacob left a spiritual legacy, one that was focused on his relationship with the Lord, one that recounted the stories of his past and his present walk with God, and that was given as an inheritance to his offspring. And in giving them that, Jacob left a legacy that would endure, and that's what brings me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. You will bless your loved ones and leave them with an enduring spiritual legacy of faith when you remind them of God's past faithfulness when you live with reliant confidence in His continued faithfulness both now and in the future. I want to put that into my, my North Hall upbringing way of speaking. Do you want to leave something that's going to make a difference? It's going to last? Then you tell your kids and your grandkids about how good God's been to you in the past. How he stuck in there with you when you didn't stick in there with him. How when you were rebellious, he chased you across the the mounds and across the fields with the hounds of heaven to bring you back. You tell them you tell them that even with your daddy sent him and did things that he regrets and was unfaithful to God. God was never unfaithful to me. He loved me in spite of all of my failures. And he pulled me through some things that I never knew how I would ever get out of. You tell them that. You tell them that the same God who was faithful then will be faithful to them.
And you look them in the eye. And you let them know in the way that you handle your life, in the way you handle your work, in the way you handle disagreements at home, in the way you handle sickness, in the way you handle success, you let them see that God is governing the steps that you take. Even though they may not always be the best steps, you let them know that you trust God more than you trust anything else. You tell them that. You demonstrate it for them. Because there's going to be moments in their lives when they need to know that that was their father's faith and that that was their mother's faith, but it will never become their faith if they don't have that example being set before them. There has to be a transparency that you're willing to share with those who come after you so that they can see that the things that matter most to you really do matter. That's the only way a legacy gets passed on. And then you also let them know that there are some things in your life right now that you have no idea how they're going to turn out. You don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know how the situation that you're facing right now is going to actually come about. You only know one thing. God who has brought me this far will never leave me or abandon me and He will take me where I go. They will also face those same things in their life and they need to know that the same faith that you are proclaiming to them is a faith that they can depend on. Let me ask you, what is your legacy? What are you leaving to those who come behind you? I want you to know this. You can't leave something that you don't possess. You can't leave to anyone behind you something that is not yours. And so for some of you in this room, perhaps the very first thing that you need to do is that you need to come to the realization that apart from Christ, you are lost and you stand condemned before a holy and righteous God and that He has called to you by His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, who gave His life in your place. And He is the same one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by Me. The first step in being able to leave a legacy that will really count and will make a difference in the lives of your loved ones is you taking a step forward in faith yourself and trusting in Jesus. Perhaps for some of you, that's the first thing that needs to happen. I hope that it will. For the rest of us in this room that we've taken that step, oh, I pray that we will ask ourselves the question, what is my legacy and will it endure? Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the convicting power of the Holy Spirit that accompanies it. Thank you for the fact that it reaches down and pierces us down to the very deepest part of our, our soul. It reminds us of the most important things. When we stand before you, when we realize what you've done for us through Christ, we have no room for pride, no room for boasting. All we can do 
Just thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy that is greater than our sins. Thank you that you've dealt with us in that way and not in with what we deserve. Thank you that you've been faithful to us in spite of our unfaithfulness. And then I pray, God, that you would just impress upon us the absolute necessity of leaving a legacy that will count. We will leave a legacy. I pray, God, that you would help us to leave a legacy that will endure. Thank you for your love, and thank you for your mercy, and thank you for this opportunity to be able to honor you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.